Well, once again, good morning. morning. It is so good to see you today. I actually watched, or can you bring that down a little bit on the microphone? Um, So I actually watched or listened to a podcast the other day that said, uh, that said, as pastors, when you get up, you shouldn't say good morning, that, that only the first person should say good morning and that everybody else after that should just carry on with the morning's activities. But it still feels really awkward, like when I step up here and I'm like, so let's just jump into things. So I'm going to keep doing the good morning thing, even though conventional wisdom says that I shouldn't. I'm not a very conventional guy, which actually fits in pretty well with this morning's message. Um, So let's pray right quick as we turn our attention to the word of God, shall we? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. God, uh, many are the struggles that we face in our lives. Many are um, the the difficulties. And Lord, we we know that in the midst of it all that you have, uh, we believe and we trust that you have a purpose and a plan. And Lord, we pray that you would just demonstrate your faithfulness to us again and again and again. Lord, that you'd help us to, to see and remember past moments where your promise has come through for us. And Lord, help us to, in the midst of our differences between one another and differences in the world, help us to still make space for your grace, Lord, for others and also for ourselves. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning by your grace and in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask a a question or a couple as we start this morning's sermon. Uh, The the first question is this, how different are we okay with being? How different are we willing to be? How much are we willing to to stand out from the crowd and and to, to stand up when others maybe are acting in other ways? Secondarily, how much different is too much for us to take? Where, where does it cross the line where, where the different in our minds becomes, shall we say, dangerous? This is a question that, that goes through my head often, mostly because I am often, I know this is going to come as a shock to you, uh, in most rooms that I enter, I am the different one. And that's been, that's been my lot in life for a great many years, but nowhere was it more clear than when I was at Appalachian Bible College in Bradley, West Virginia, an independent fundamental school in the middle of the coal fields of West Virginia. And it, it, it might come as a shock to you now, most of you maybe not, but um, I, I, was, I looked differently in previous years. And my hair was much higher on my head than it is now. And in much the same way that it's multicolored now, it was multicolored then, only it wasn't naturally multicolored. And I remember at, at one particular time going home and making it even more not naturally colored with the assistance of my sister. Now, at Appalachian Bible College, they they are a people of what I would call two books, a people of two books. And in one hand, they hold the word of God, the ultimate authority for life and godliness. But at a close second, in the other hand, they hold what they know as the servant's staff. And the servant staff is the student handbook 
for Appalachian Bible College. And as an independent, fundamental school, there's not much they haven't legislated about in that book. They've dealt with all matters of life and godliness, even helping the Bible along in ways that maybe the good Lord missed it. So there were rules upon rules upon rules, and much of that rule book was about doing away with differentiation. I mean, much of what the school was doing was trying to make a very, a very particular type of pastor, a very particular type of missionary, a very particular type of Bible scholar. And so they had this mold in mind, this image of what they were trying to create. For, for instance, it was the, the rules were very tight. You had to wear um, khaki pants or, or colored pants. They could not be jeans. You had to wear dress shoes. You had to wear dress socks. You had to wear a belt. Your shirt had to be tucked in. You were supposed to be clean shaven at all times. And at the beginning of my time there, the hair was supposed to be cut above the ears and off the collar. So pretty, pretty strict rules. But it said nothing about the color that that hair could be. So I went home and I had my sister come in and, and we, we did some highlights. And, and to say that their highlights is technically an inaccuracy because it was a whole different world. It wasn't just highlighting my natural color. It was going a totally different direction. To call it bleached blonde would be a, a gross understatement. I think that the actual color would be something more akin to like a nuclear yellow. That would probably be more accurate. So I had my, my darkish brown hair and then these nuclear yellow highlights in my hair. And the hair was not only multicolor, it was multidirectional, right? It was just an intentional mess going all different directions. And I came back to school after break with this multicolored, multidirectional, nuclear colored hair. And I got to school, and it wasn't two weeks later, we had a special chapel at Appalachian Bible College. And we came in, and good old president, Dr. A, came in, and he, he made the mention of the, the two books and, and the Bible being the ultimate authority, but also the importance of the servant staff. And he talked about how from time to time it was important to make new rules to make sure that we were in keeping with the standards of Appalachian Bible College. The new rule that he read that day said this on page 10 of the servant staff. Under the type topic of deference in men's fashion. It said, quote, trendy or faddish hairstyles that call undue attention to themselves are not acceptable. And hair should be of a natural color. Now, you don't have to do too much math. You don't have to be too observant to understand what was the impetus for that, that rule change. Now, what you couldn't possibly know is that I was actually helping with a youth group there, and after about two days of me being there, a couple of students who were children of professors started popping up with multicolored hair. And so Dr. A is like, we got to deal with this. This is not, it was an emergency. Like it, and, and they would talk about it as if this coloring of the hair had to be stopped because it was pulling at the very fabric of Appalachian Bible College. 
that it was going to undo 50 years of history of faithfulness to the text of Scripture. Now, for me, I, I of course, after my hair grew out, did not dye it multicolor anymore. But I did and do to this day, where the fact that they created not one, but two rules in my honor as a badge of honor. <laughs> you know, we asked the question at the beginning, how different are we willing to be and how different is too much to take? You know, that, that's, that's humorous because it's a school setting and they've got their own rules and I don't begrudge them for what they did. Appalachian Bible College does a great job doing what they're doing for the churches they're doing it for. And, and I got a great education there, albeit that I did not fit very well. That's fine. But, but might I submit to you that, that sometimes we, we are a little bit too reactive to differentness in our society. That we don't make a lot of room for different perspectives for different ways of living, for different practices, for different cultures, for different styles of music. We could, we could add a whole bunch of nuance different in there, couldn't we? And, and there are just different differences that for whatever reason make us go, hmm, that's too much. I know that for some of you, the fact that my shoes do not match is too much different for you today. And I wore these intentionally just to bother you today. <laughs> Take solace in that fact that I thought of you so much this morning that I wore these shoes for you. <laughs> of course I jest, but the fact is that the, the reality of difference is, is a, a big thing for the world and has been historically. And we're gonna see this morning in our chapter in Esther that the reality of differences, ways that we need to be different and ways that differences were not tolerated play into how we live our lives as the people of God. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Esther chapter three. Esther chapter three. And this morning, I'm just going to go ahead and read through the whole chapter. Esther chapter three says this. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? And day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. 
their customs are different from those of all the people. And they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took off his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people what you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors in the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So we see this, this story here as things continue to develop, right? Week one, we looked and we saw in Esther 1 that the king makes this terrible decision with, with his wife Vashti. And he sends for her to come and is very inappropriate towards her and she refuses. So he makes a law. The, the, their, their domestic dispute is so significant that he makes a law and he legislates that, that she is gone. She is done. She will never be a queen again. She will never be seen by the king and all of this to control the potential outbreak of wives everywhere. In chapter 2, last week, we saw that, that the king finally comes to his sentence, senses, and five years later, as he's sitting alone in his palace after unspeakable defeat, he's sitting there and someone comes and says, hey, you know what, you should probably get another queen. So yet another terrible idea is, is mentioned, and they have a beauty contest to pick the next queen of the largest empire in the world. By the grace of God, Esther becomes the queen. And, we, and here we see things continuing to roll and the king continuing to make terrible decisions based on terrible device and limited information. And we meet, once again, the man Mordecai, who was mentioned in chapter 2 as, as the uncle or the, excuse me, cousin and adopted father of Esther. We see this this. this edict made that everyone is to kneel down to Haman when he makes his way through the gate because he is now the highest of advisors in the land and Haman for whatever re reason refuses. He's different from everybody else. When everyone is bowing to the royal edict, when everyone else is going with the flow, when everyone is doing what has been asked of them, for whatever reason Mordecai says, nah, I'm not doing that. And we're going to see why in a minute, but the, the, the point that we're going to see here is that, that you and I have to have the courage to stand firm in the faith, even when there are consequences. We need to have courage to stand firm in the faith, even if there are consequences. 
Now, the author gives us uh, uh, an indication that this is not a new development. That this bad blood that is brewing between Mordecai and Haman, that this has potentially been a generations-old conflict that is just once again coming to the fore. In some ways, it reflects a conflict that we've seen here in the past in America. Who's heard of the Hatfields and McCoys? I mean, it would be better to ask who doesn't and have the three people in the room raise their hand, right? Because it is... It is one of those iconic things in our culture. This this long-standing and bloody dispute between two families, the the McCoy family, which lived in Kentucky, and the Hatfield family, which lived in West Virginia. Now, we don't actually know what the root cause. There there are dozens of documentaries and movies, the most recent one being the the one with Kevin Costner is fabulous, by the way, where they have this dispute going back and forth. And we don't know exactly why it started. We know that that there are two reasons they think it might have happened. One, the theory as it goes, is that the McCoys actually served with the Union in the Civil War. And the Hatfields served with the Confederacy in the Civil War. And they had known each other before as they lived in close proximity. And that separation on the battlefield just carried on for years to come. That they never forgave each other. They never got over their difference of opinion with that war. I like the second option better. The second option states that Hatfield one time found a pig while walking through the woods and was like, hey, it's bacon. So he took the pig, went home, and made bacon. Well, it turns out that around that same time, Mr. McCoy lost a pig. And so he insisted for the rest of his life that he lost a pig and that Mr. Hatfield stole it. And so for generations, for for years after that, they would go back and forth across the state lines. They would go steal people or kidnap people from West Virginia, take them back to Kentucky to try them. Or they would come over to Kentucky and take them back to West Virginia. And they would execute each other. And it was this big bloody thing and became such a big feud that the government actually had to step in and stop it. Because too many people were dying. Again, famous, right? Like, you know how I learned about the Hatfield and McCoy feud originally? The Looney Tunes, right? There were like two dozen different cartoons that used that Hatfield and McCoy imagery to demonstrate whatever it was they were demonstrating in the cartoon. Then I lived in West Virginia, and I actually knew some Hatfields and McCoys. And you know what's funny? Is they still blame each other today. Decades later. Like, they're not as hostile towards each other, but if you get them private one-on-one, they'll be like, oh, it's their fault. For sure, he stole that pig. (laughs) This is even greater than that. And the author is trying to draw our attention to the significance of this national identity and the conflict inherent in their national identities. Karen H. Jobes, a commentator on the book of Esther, writes, In Hebrew narrative, the characteristic described when a character is introduced is key to understanding his or her role in the story. 
So for, in other words, the first thing that you read about a person in a Hebrew narrative is of utmost importance. It's one of those things that, that, that it's not just a passing comment. Pay attention to this because it's going to matter later. But we see here in chapter 3, verse 1, it tells us that Haman, the son of Hamadatha, was an Agagite. An Agagite. If we were to look back, though, to Esther chapter 2 in verse 5, we see a similar introduction concerning Mordecai. And it tells us in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. So for both of these gentlemen... The first thing that we read is their lineage. Now, for you and I, as modern readers, that means nothing. It's just like anything else in the Bible. It's a bunch of names that we skip over because we're not exactly sure how to pronounce them. Right? Moving on. But there's actually a long-standing history in the Bible about these two different people groups. If we look back in Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16, we see that the Amalekites are an important people. The Amalekites. Now, I'm going to get to why I'm mentioning the Amalekites in a moment here. But the Amalekites were actually the first nation to attack the Hebrew people after they became a nation. I mean, we could say that the original enemy of the Hebrew people is the Egyptians, right? We could say that because they had held them in slavery for so many years, and that would be accurate. But the first nation that became their enemy after they became an official nation, not just when they were the children of, of, of Jacob, not just when they were the children of Joseph, but when, when they had gone to, they were on their way to the promised land, they had gone to the mountain of God, God had given them the covenant, and they had officially become God's covenant people. The first nation to attack them is the Amalekites. We could then say, this is the OG enemy of the Israelites. Now, their battle is famous too. This is the battle in Exodus where Moses stands on the mountaintop holding his staff above his head all day long, right? And he gets tired, and anytime he's tired and he drops his arm, what happens? The people of Israel begin to lose. But every time he holds his arms up, the people of Israel begin to win. And so what happens? They go get Aaron. They go get Hur. They sit Moses down on a stone. And they have Aaron and Hur stand on each side, holding his arms up until the Israelite people win the victory. But God promises subsequently, you can read this in Exodus, that there will be enmity, that these two nations will be enemies generation upon generation upon generation. Well, how does this have anything to do with Haman. It doesn't say Haman is an Amalekite. Well, if we go forward a couple hundred years, we see Israel gets their first king, right? And their first king is Saul. And God tells Saul, hey, Saul, I'm going to finally do what I said. I'm going to get rid of your longtime enemy. I'm going to get rid of the Amalekites. And I want you to go to the Amalekites, and I want you to go scorched earth on everything. I want you to kill everybody. I want you to kill every animal and everything they own. I want you to destroy utterly. Keep nothing, save nothing alive, kill them all, including their king, Agag, the king of the Amalekites. 
So, so Saul goes and he has this battle. And, and if you remember your biblical history, Saul doesn't follow the instructions of the Lord. They win the battle, but in winning the battle, they decide, hey, like, this is some good stuff. Like, why would I destroy this? Like, that's a really nice donkey. I could use a new donkey, right? That's a really good sheep. I could use some new wool, right? This is nice gold. Like, who can't use some more gold? And we've already destroyed his armies. Why should I kill Agag the king? I'm going to take him with me too as a badge of honor. So he does. He keeps all the best stuff. He keeps Agag alive. And the, the scripture tells us in 1 Samuel that, that when the prophet Samuel comes and he hears the bleeding of sheep and he sees Agag sitting there living large, he's like, mm-mm, this is not going to work. Because you failed to do what the Lord your God has told you, you will no longer be the king of Israel. God is going to steal or take away the kingdom from you. So if you think about it, that battle between Agag and Saul, there was no winner. That was bad for everybody. Saul loses his kingdom Agag thinks he's in the clear. The scripture tells us, like, it's, it's funny narrative there in Samuel, if you go read it. It says that, that Agag is sitting there thinking, well, surely all the bloodshed is done. I'm good. And the prophet Samuel's like, nope. <laughs> Kills him. Agag loses his kingdom and his life. Well, how does, this, how does this relate to the text today? How does that relate to Esther? Well, scripture tells us that Haman is an Agagite. He is, if not literally, at least metaphorically, a child of Agag, the enemy of Israel. And we know from the lineage of Mordecai that Mordecai is a son of Kish, attaching him back to Saul. So here we have these two people whose families have hated each other for the better part, whose nations have hated each other, for a thousand years, they've hated each other. This is a long-running feud between these two people. And, and, and the author is setting up the, the reality of this conflict, that, that the hatred between these two different people runs deep. Runs deep. There, is pro, there are problems brewing in the Persian neighborhood. Now, we can actually look and... and History tells us that being an Agagite, it is possible to be an Agagite without being a, 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 an Amalekite. Through the ages, the term Agagite has actually become uh, what they used to define those that are enemies, the worst enemies of God. The Romans were referred to as Agagites, for instance, in the first century. As as recently as 1994, in 1994, the New York Times reported on a militant group of Israelis who referred to their Arab enemies as, quote, Agagites. 1994. This is a feud that still has not ended today. It's deep. The author wants us to know there's, there's historic bad blood between these two people groups. But, but Mordecai's, and it makes you wonder when you know that. So is, is, is Mordecai's refusal to bow, is he just, is he just being difficult? 
I mean, I'll be honest, as I read it and I thought it, I, one of my first notes to myself in my Bible on my post-it notes was, I don't know that I believe that Mordecai is without fault in this. I mean, it's not that big of a deal. The fact is you can, you can look through history and see that there were other Israelites that bowed to kings. I mean, if this is just a matter of deference, right? If this is the matter of he is a higher ranking official than you are, this is not a big deal. There are plenty of examples in the Old Testament where Israelites would, would bow or they would kneel before people who were their superiors, their authorities. So what's, what's really going on here with this? What is the issue? Mordecai clearly has some convictions though, doesn't he? And Mordecai's convictions put him in conflict with a very powerful and influential enemy. Now, I do think that this is a really weird twist in the story, though. That we come in, because look again at verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, after these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Now, what events is it talking about? Well, let's look back for just a moment, and we'll reference this in a future sermon, so I'm not going to spend much time in it. Look at verses 19 and following of chapter 2. It says, When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and they conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. When the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So we read that, and the very next thing is, after these events, King Xerxes honored. Now what would be the natural thing or natural name to follow the end of chapter 2? After all these events, King Xerxes honored Mordecai. That would make perfect sense, would it not? Like, narratively, that would flow better. Like, after these events, King Xerxes honored Mordecai. Why? Because he just saved his life. But it doesn't say that. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Where does he come from? Like, how does he all of a sudden get inserted to the, to the story? One could understand then, and this ran through my head, if you're Mordecai and all these things have happened, you've just saved the king's life. He's just stolen your niece away to be his new wife. And, and and you just saved his life, and he, he, he honors some other guy? One would understand if Haman was a little, or Mordecai was a little salty about that. Haman comes walking out. He's like, I'm not bowing to you. You should be bowing to me. I just saved the king. What did you do last Tuesday? So is he just, is he just salty about this? Is he upset because he promoted Haman? And he didn't just promote Haman a little bit. He promoted Haman to be the highest advisor in the land. And if you pay attention, there's actually a shift that happens here in chapter 3 from chapter 1. In chapter 1, how many advisors did the king have? Seven. By chapter 3, how many advisors, how many advisors did the king have? One. 
which actually makes sense. If two of your advisors just tried to kill you and you executed them, well, that reduces your number to five, right? And two of them tried to kill you, so the odds of some of the other five being angry, pretty good. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to have one. Let's just go with one and call it good. And the quality of his advice isn't any worse, to be completely honest. But here we go, and he's got one advisor. And as a result, everyone has to, obey, uh, to bow down, and Mordecai refuses. Now, the only clue the text gives us in our English version is in one phrase. He refused to bow, and he had told them he was a Jew. That was it. That's the only thing it gives us. He had told them he was a Jew, refused to comply. Now, this is one of those instances where you go back to the original languages and the Hebrew wording is important. That it gives us a hint, a, a snapshot of what you, what's actually going on here. Now, there are examples, again, throughout the Old Testament of Israelites bowing or kneeling before those in power, positions of authority. I just stated that. The wording used in those cases is specific. The wording used in the instances where Israelites bow or kneel before people in positions of authority, their superiors, is a, key, is a specific set of wording that is used every time those wordings, that wording is used. Those words are not used here. Now, the wording used in this instance is used elsewhere in the Bible. But rather than bowing in the presence of your superior human beings, those that are in authority above you, the only time the wording that is used here in Esther 3 about bowing before the authority is used for bowing in the presence of Almighty God. Is the only time it's ever used. Well, the indication then would be that for some reason, there was something about Haman, something going on with Haman, something in the edict that we don't have from history that that made Mordecai feel that by kneeling to Haman, he was committing an act of idolatry. That it was causing him to, to go against his convictions, against his faith in God. Remember, we've talked about how in Esther, God isn't mentioned explicitly. Well, God is implicitly in this text. His refusal to bow is because he cannot give the same respect to Haman that he would give to his God. It's not about the action. It's about the idea behind it. This lifting up of Haman or something on him as being divine, Mordecai couldn't do. Mordecai knew what he was doing. Mordecai understood the consequences, I would argue. And he could have rightly been punished for his disobedience. And I think, based on the text, that he was okay with that. Which brings us to an important thought. It is possible and even likely that in our world, we will face situations where our faith will clash with the currents of the culture around us. In those moments, we are called to be different. We are called to stand firm even when everyone around us bows. 
Now, I want to be clear about this. I want us to note what Haman or what Mordecai does not do. He doesn't go protest at the gate of the palace and say, no, you know, down with Haman. He doesn't make a big mess. He doesn't, he doesn't rally all his people to, to go against what's going on. He just stands firm, willing to suffer the consequences for his actions. And I think you and I need to do the same. Our call is not to go to battle against the culture, but to stand firm in our faith, even when the culture is going a different direction. And to be willing, and I could show you this over and over and over again in the New Testament, to be willing to suffer the consequences for our actions. We may not be able to change the culture. We're not called to fight the culture. We are called to simply be different in the midst of a culture that may be combative to us. That's what we see Mordecai doing here. We have to have the courage to stand firm in our faith, even if and when there are consequences attached. At the same time, while we see in Mordecai a positive example of do this, in Haman, I think we see a negative example of don't do this. Because while we need to stand strong in our faith and stand firm in our convictions, willing to suffer consequences as we stand against the currents of culture, we need to have the grace to make space for those who are different. We need to have the grace to make space for those who are different. Haman's vindictive anger and judgment towards one person gets incredibly overblown, doesn't it? I mean, you look at the text and it becomes massive. Like it's not just I have an interpersonal issue with this one guy who refuses to bow to me. It's, no, he, he goes further. He says, you know, it's not enough for me just to punish him. Let's kill them all. Let's destroy. They all have to be destroyed. Now, it's interesting though, as you read the text, the issue is extremely minor. Like, not just from a common sense standpoint, right? Like, one dude won't kneel and honor you, and the king said so, you know? You know, feel bad for yourself, whatever. Not a big deal. But here's the crazy thing. It was so inconsequential that Haman didn't even notice. Did you notice that as we read? Haman didn't even notice what's going on. Day after day, it tells us, he goes through the gate, everyone else bows, and, Haman, and, and Mordecai says, I can't do it, I'm, I'm out. And everyone around him says, hey, Mordecai, you need to kneel. Are you not gonna do what the king says? And he says, absolutely not, I'm a Jew. So you know what his good buddies and close friends and fellow advisors sitting at the gate do? I'm telling. Now, apparently Haman didn't know and his friends didn't know the old statement, you know, Snitches get stitches. <laughs> Ain't nobody likes a tattletale. But they do. They go and tattle. They go and tell Haman. They want to know, is this going to be tolerated? Like he's not doing what everyone else is doing. He's not going with the flow. He's acting differently. We got to do something about this. Are we going to tolerate this? And Haman's like, you know what? Absolutely not. This is an affront to the king himself. This cannot be tolerated. We, we can't just destroy them. We need to destroy everybody. Women, children, everybody. 
So Haman brings the issue to Xerxes. And he offers to foot the bill for destroying the people. Now we read this and we see 10,000 talents for silver. We're like, well, that's probably a lot of money. But we don't realize how much money that that is. Remember last week we talked about the fact that King Xerxes had just gone on a very costly campaign against Greece, which he lost. And as a result of, lost a good portion of Persian wealth. So the truth is that King Xerxes is probably a might skimp on the cheddar, you know? So here comes this guy and says, I will give you 10,000 talents of, of silver if you'll let me destroy this group of people. And the, the king initially we see demurs. Now, we know later in the story that the king took the money. This is like one of those things where someone comes and offers you a really nice present and you're like, oh, it's too, too much. I could never take it. But really you're like, absolutely, give it to me, Right? You ever do that? Someone offers you something really nice or something really expensive, and you're like, I, could, I couldn't take that. And inside you're like, please, dear. You're like, you're playing the odds because you want to be polite. But inside you're thinking, please, God, let them offer it again. And the next time they offer it, you're like, well, thanks. I, I guess if, if you insist, right, you're just being polite. You want the gift. You want the present. And the King Xerxes, he's offered 10,000 talents. Now, there's no way he's going to turn that down. You know why I know there's no way he's going to turn that down? The annual budget. The annual revenue collected by the Persian Empire for a year to function as a government was 14,000 talents of silver. Haman is offering two-thirds of the national budget. You don't say no to that. Like, that's one of those, no, absolutely not, you know? <laughs> He's taking that money. Now, we'll talk about Xerxes in a moment. But I want to look at what are the charges? Like when Haman comes as this advisor to the king and he presents it to the king, what does he present that is so compelling that the king is like, yep, here's my ring. Do as you will. Well, let's look. It says in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, every time I've read that, I have emphasized certain words on purpose. And I honestly could have just preached on verse 8, and I felt like it would have been incredibly culturally appropriate for the moment in which we live. The charges are these. Those people are different. Those people are not like us. Those people don't do what we do. Those people don't follow our customs. It explicitly says that, right? Clearly, their culture is different. Their actions are different. Their values are different. Their language is different. They are different, which is kind of humorous because Haman isn't even a native-born Persian. Like we talk about America being a melting pot 
that all these nations come here, which is great and that's true, but we've got nothing on the Persian empire. They were a melting pot because they went out and got the ingredients and they mixed everything up. Everybody was different in the Persian empire. But those people are different. Then what's the second thing he says? Well, those people don't obey your laws, king. Now, technically, is it true? For at least one person, right? Like this is not an everybody issue. This is a Mordecai issue. He says, all the people don't obey your laws. Those people don't obey your laws. Really, it was just Mordecai. It was one dude. Mordecai didn't follow. And it's not all your laws, king. Like, it's one law. Like, as the king, wouldn't you have asked, well, what, what laws are you talking about? Well, not important. No, no, please tell me. What laws don't they obey? Well, you know how you said when I come through the gate, people are supposed to bow? He doesn't do it. King doesn't ask. But because Mordecai didn't bow, he says they don't obey the laws. Gross exaggeration. Not exactly the stuff of revolution. But then again, neither is a wife refusing to come parade naked in front of a whole bunch of drunken guests. But that became a statute for all households throughout the whole nation. Kind of par for the course for them. Now what does he say? They're different. They don't obey the king's laws. They must not be tolerated. Can't tolerate it, king. Cannot tolerate them. Subtext is fairly clear. Those people are a threat to our way of life. Really? Really? Seems kind of extreme. But I, and I say this with all grace and a little bit of fear and trepidation in my heart. But verse 8 just sat so heavy on me this week. Because are we so much different? Are we so much better than them? I mean, is this not what we do? See people out there that, that, that have different perspectives, different opinions, different convictions, and we say, we cannot tolerate those people. Those people are going to be the undoing of our country. Those people are going to be the undoing of our way of life. Those people are going to be the undoing of our religion. Those people are going to be the destruction of the families. Those people are going to, and I'm not even going to go into who those people are. The fact is, most of you are probably offended because there are some people in your head that you're saying, well, those people are the exception. And I'll be honest, I am pointing fingers at me. There are people that I see sometimes and I'm like, hey, kids, when you're around those people, you got to be careful. Those people are dangerous. I mean, wouldn't it be better for me just to train my kids to not do what those people do? But instead, I, I try to marginalize those people. Let's keep different distance. Let's push them to the side. Let's in effect, I may not say let's destroy them, but, but I do damage to them. And brothers and sisters, while, it's, while we would love to, to compare ourselves to Mordecai, sometimes I fear that we are an awful lot like Haman. And we join in with the chorus of, of voices around us and we say, yeah, but it's different. We can't tolerate those people. They're too different. 
They're too far gone. As if God's grace isn't expansive enough. You know, the Bible tells us that, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. But somehow, those people, God didn't take them into account. I mean, Satan and all of the demons, God can handle them. But the Democrats, I mean, we live in a world of cancel culture, of boycott culture, of looking at other and trying to find ways to push them farther and farther to the margins. Those people are different They don't have the same culture. They don't have the same morality. They don't have the same understanding as us. We must protect ourselves and we must destroy them before they destroy us. Bit of an overstatement on my part? Perhaps. Am I all wrong? I don't think so. I wish I was seems that every day someone is offended by the actions, attitudes, of wor- or words of someone else. And one group rallies the troops against another with different customs, practice, perspectives, languages, or cultures. And somehow, the differences between us constitute a threat to what's in our best interest. And it got me thinking. And I really want you to think about this with me, okay? I'm asking you to walk with me and to deal with the difficulty that I've dealt with of of marinating in this passage for the last week. What is more dangerous? Different or intolerant? What is more dangerous? Different or intolerant? Now, I want to be clear because I want to talk about Tolerance. It's one of those words that I don't even like saying from the stage because I know that it sets some of your teeth on edge. It does mine too. It's one of those words that I just don't like. And I wonder why. We act as if tolerance is the utmost of relational integrity. That if we tolerate someone, that means full unhindered acceptance. That if we tolerate someone, it means deep connection and love. That if we tolerate someone, it means full agreement, right? Now, we, you might hear me say that and say, that's ridiculous. We, don't act, we do act that way. We act that way. That if we tolerate someone, that means we're on the same team. I want you to try something for me, okay? A little thought experience, experiment. I want you to pretend for a moment that you do something amazing at work. It's incredible. You just kill it. You make thousands of dollars for your company. You save them thousands of dollars. You you do this glowing thing that brings great renown to your company. And then I want you to think your boss comes to you and they recognize what you've done. And they look at you and they say, Larry, thanks for your hard work. I really tolerate your work. Larry going to walk away from that going, wow, he tolerates me. That is so awesome. It's probably true. (laughs) Yeah, we all do. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have chosen Larry. (laughs) Sorry, Larry. (laughs) Okay, maybe that one doesn't work. Let's use a different example. So say I just went and got Michaela. You saw my lovely daughter up here. I come and I see Michaela for the first time after a month of being away. And I come and she comes to give me a hug. And I said, hey, first, I want to tell you something. 
I really tolerate you. Try that with your wife next time. You're having a moment. You're having a moment and she's looking deep into your eyes and just look at her with all seriousness. Look deep in her eyes and say, babe, I tolerate you. How's that going to work for you? Right? Let's draw up the divorce papers. Where do we get the idea that tolerance is the utmost of relational standing? In truth, is tolerance not the basement floor? It's like, I can stand looking at you. I, I can stand being in the same general vicinity as you. I can tolerate you. Tolerance is not wholehearted acceptance. Tolerance is I'm going to let you live. I'm going to find a way to be okay with you just existing. But for some reason, we as the people of God, people who are supposed to have grace upon grace, people who are supposed to be going into all the world and making disciples of all the nations, people that are supposed to be reaching out to all peoples, people who are supposed to be calling sinners to repentance, which consequently means that when we approach them, they are sinners. And we're like, well, God can't save that person. Their culture is too far. They are too different. And we just need to let God destroy them because it's too much. Now, it sounds ridiculous, but do we not act like, has the church not acted like that at times in the past? Do we not fall into that trap today? I think we do. And I think it's something of which we need to repent we cannot be a place of grace. We cannot call the world to repentance. We cannot call the world to, and expect them to see Jesus as being someone who is calling them, saying, come all who will. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and find them rest. If we are building walls and saying, except for you, you are too different and cannot be tolerated. Tolerance is the lowest form of human connections. In most cases, it's a benevolent indifference. You do you, and I'll do me. My uncle John Contreras, actually, last week, he's a pastor. He said this about his own church. He said, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about recently is we've been called to be fishers of men. And you can't clean fish you haven't caught. You can't clean fish you haven't caught. Now, I want to give a brief warning against indifference. We talked about intolerance. I'm going to give a warning about indifference because that's inherent in this text too. We see it in King Xerxes. Haman comes and says, hey, there's a people. And they don't follow your laws. They're too different. Can't be tolerated. We got to destroy them. And he, King's just like, hey, here's my ring. Do what you want to do with them. Do whatever you want with those people. He doesn't ask who the people are. He doesn't ask what they've done. He doesn't really care. He's going to get two-thirds of his national budget. It's worth it. Go do what you want to do, boo-boo. Total indifference. And his indifference to the harm of others. His, his indifference causes harm to others. It, it brings about the ultimate harm, why? Because it's to his advantage. And sometimes I think that we think that it's advantageous for us to just stay out of it. I'll be honest, this week, I wanted to be indifferent. 
This week I was looking for any other way that I could preach this passage and find a way to demonstrate indifference to what I saw in the text because it was uncomfortable and I knew that inevitably it was not going to make me popular. But we're not called to indifference. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. We need to be careful about being indifferent. But most of all, we need to have the grace to make space for those who are different. Make space for those who are far from God to come near to him, which requires them to come near to us. Make space for us to have conversation of those of different cultures, from different perspectives, from different backgrounds, even those who are sinners. As Paul says, you and I once were. Now, what do we do in the midst of this as we're standing firm and as we're, we're putting ourselves in a situation where we're not destroying other cultures, but we're being tolerant of those that are different than us? What do we do in the midst of that? How will we survive in the face of such evils? Again, it's inherent in the midst of the text, something that we would read over with our English eyes. And the author is making a point over and over again throughout Esther, and it's this, that God has delivered before, and his promise never fails. Why do I say that? Well, there are two date tags or time tags in the text. In verses 7 and 12, we're told that it's the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, and that during this time, Haman has been seeking the perfect time to destroy the Jewish people. Esther has been queen for five years by this time, which is interesting because she's five years deep and the king still doesn't know that she's a Jew. Haman doesn't know she's a Jew and they don't know she's related to Mordecai. How do we know that? Because the king later, when he finds out that Haman has set up to kill his queen, is less than pleased. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well for Haman. So he's casting lots. The passage tells us he's casting the purr. And the purr are lots. Now the lots were a form of for divine direction. It was basically a, a tactile form of praying. And he would throw the lots. And what he's looking for is for the gods or for God to, to guide his action and to give him the perfect time to act. Now, another date that we see here is we see that it is the month of Nisan and it is the 13th day when he makes his decree. You and I read that and then we're like, we don't need the calendar details, brother. Why does that matter? Well, it's important. Because you know what happened on Nisan on the 13th day? That is the day on which the people of Israel would read the Passover account of the deliverance of the people from Egypt. So on the very day that Haman puts into action his plan to destroy the people of God, the people of God probably didn't hear about it. You know why? Because they're at home reading about how God has delivered them in the past and how God will deliver them in the future. Even as Haman is plotting the destruction of God's people, God is reminding them, I've got this. I've got you. And I would argue that even the casting of lots, you know that the Hebrew people casted lots themselves. I would argue that that the hand of God moved those lots and worked these things out. And what seems like Haman arbitrarily and randomly assigning a date to destroy a people is actually God controlling the hands of time and saying, 
This is when this is going to happen, but I've got this. I've got you. My promise still stands, and what I've done before, I will do again. It's foreshadowing. The question being asked to those that would have read a Jewish audience reading in Hebrew is this, where is God now, and will he once again deliver his people? And the answer is a resounding yes, amen, and always. There will always be those who stand in opposition to and seek the destruction of God's people. There will always be those and and, and currents of culture that sweep against the people of God and his church. But God is faithful. God is still the solid rock upon which we stand. And though the floodwaters rise and though the rivers roar of culture around us, as long as we stand on the truth of God's word and the truth of Christ, the coming and risen king, we will know that we will stay secure and God will not fail us. He has never failed us before and he will never fail us again. Our hope is sure. God has been faithful in the past God is faithfully working in the present. And God will be faithful to deliver in the future. Do we trust him enough to do what he's asked us in the midst of it? Do we trust him enough to stand firm as culture is coming against us? Do we, do we trust him enough to stand firm in the face of consequences? Do we trust him enough to keep the doors open in order that all who would would come and hear the truth of his gospel, that all those that he intended would come to salvation? Do we trust him enough to put ourselves out there and make space for grace that God would fill this place with his people of every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every perspective, and all kinds of sinners who need to repent? I pray to God that that would be the truth that we would truly be a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand, and that God would use us as we stand firm to make space for grace that our faith might spread to the ends of the earth. Father God, I thank you for your goodness and grace to each of us. God, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to be loving as you are loving, to call all who would come and to make space Lord, help us not to see different as dangerous, but to understand that we are called to make space for those who are different in order that all might come to faith. God, fill us with your grace. Make us conduits of your goodness. May we see your sacrifice and what you've given for those in the world, and may we do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.